This is Coder Radio, episode 348, from March 11, 2019. Hello and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by that crazy hacker himself, the one, the only, Mr. Michael Dominic. Mwahaha! After 340 episodes, I'm free! It's time to conquer scale! Oh yes, that's right. I just got back from scale. Actually, the whole JB crew was out there, and I gotta tell you, it was my first scale. It was a ton of fun. Really? So tell me, what was the highlight of scale? Okay, well, the the personal highlight for me was getting to see Brendan Gregg, the incredible performance engineer at Netflix, give a great talk all about the modern traceability tools that we have with eBPF on Linux. It's like Dtrace, but actually slightly more powerful. Mm. And, you know, you might not care about that. We have some great tech snaps about that if people want to go find out more. But the cool demo he did, which he prepared like an hour before, was live performance debugging of Minecraft, which is not only a complex Java application, but was also a game Brendan had obviously never played before. Yes. Because mid-talk, he had to ask the audience how to mine, which if you don't play Minecraft, that's a button click on your mouse. You know, there's nothing more, uh, uh, more horrible than a reformed Minecrafter. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that the case? Now, there was, there was actually a lot to like. I really, I've been to all kinds of different conferences, but this was my first bigger Linux convention, right? So I've been to Linux Fest Northwest, and it's got a small, friendly vibe. And, and you know, there's things sure. like DEF CON or OzCon or, or some of the big, bigger reInvent that are that are just crazy, but they feel, they, they are business conferences, right? It's, it's people making business networking and connections and selling services. Bring on the suits, baby. Bring on the suits, yeah. Scale's nothing like that. It's still big enough that, like, you know, I got to go see Brendan Gregg talk, which was awesome. And all the people that you might want to see, experts are there. But everyone's friendly. Everyone's there because they love Linux. They want to talk about technology. And you can actually have some space at the end of a talk to go shake hands, say hi, take, get your picture taken with people in a way that you just can't at bigger, more businessy conventions. That sounds great. Yeah, it was great. Also, at the same time, America's Got Talent was there, and they were in the building right between the two buildings that Scale was using. It, it was pretty funny. Totally different crowds. And I got to see Simon Cowell ever so briefly go from his car to the venue. That's probably enough about Scale for now. If you want to hear more about JB's trip to Scale, go check out the upcoming episode of Linux Unplugged. Let's get things rolling with some feedback from our friend Tom over in the Coder Radio subreddit. He's got feedback for us about our last episode, Rusty Rubies, number 347, where we had some concerns about Google's growing browser dominance. Tom writes, I don't think people need to worry so much about Google or Chrome's dominance the way we did about IE6. It's not just that Chrome is cross-platform and open source, but it also sticks to standards in a way that IE never did. Amen, Tom. Practically speaking, we should also keep in mind that iOS exists. And it's always going to be locked down in a way that means no matter how popular Chrome becomes, an important portion of mobile users will always be using Apple's browser engine. 
Chrome might also lose big in some areas like web components or WebAssembly. That's the beauty of a standards-based platform. Thank you very much for your feedback, Tom. We really appreciate all the feedback we get. And you can provide us more over at coderadio.reddit.com or coder.show slash contact. What's your take, Mike? Did we hype things a little bit out of proportion last week? Yeah, I think we may have overhyped it just a little bit, right? Because you know what? You always care about mobile. I mean, I I don't know if you followed me on Twitter uh, this weekend because I know you were busy hanging out with Scale and those uh, America's Got Talents girls. And God bless you. I wish I was there. But my son uh, whipped out the Marvel coloring app for iPad. And I have the Apple Pencil, you know, Wes? Oh, you know, yeah. Those are pretty slick. And I have the new one where it has all the fancy, uh, the Apple Pencil too. So all the, like the different, like if you shade it sideways, it shades instead of just coloring. He spent two hours just coloring uh, Captain Marvel. He's wow. a Marvel Captain Marvel. That's, oh, right. that's awesome. To a level of detail that's a little scary for a two-year-old, but my faith in the iPad as a, as a harbinger of the future of computing for the masses is renewed. So yeah, I think Tom's point is well taken that mobile Safari is, is a significant thing and it's definitely going to be a check against Chrome. Yeah. Interesting. I was kind of always, I didn't, I hadn't, honestly, I hadn't thought of that. So that's a great point, Tom, because I kept thinking of Firefox as something of the backstop and in some ways it is, but that's a lot of hope in one corner. So I hear we have a new way to deploy these iPad apps that my boy likes. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's something interesting to you because we previously talked about some of the lengths you're going to figure out your build system integrating with iOS, especially since, you know, you've been using more Linux these days. And those ecosystems, well, let's say interrupt is a challenge. Yes, I'm on Linux right now. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can explain this because I saw this over in the Coder Radio subreddit and it's a post over on GitLab's blog, but titled... How to Publish iOS Apps to the App Store with GitLab and Fastlane. And I'll admit, Fastlane was not something I knew about. And I also have only gone like the official route for App Store interactions, you know, on a Mac, doing all the normal stuff. What is this? Can you can you break this down for me, Mike? Yeah, so I'm not going to go into details because I know people get all upset when I go into like line-by-line iOS Swift or deployment stuff. But basically, GitLab and a company called Fastlane. Fastlane has been around for a while they will are basically, um, geez, you have to be deep into the iOS world. But TestFlight actually was not part of Apple for a long time. Really? Yeah, they were an independent company that offered Android deployment and iOS deployment and uh, distribution services. Then Apple bought them and the Android stuff just kind of went away. So interesting. The beautiful thing about TestFlight is you could write a back in the day, you could write a bunch of scripts that integrated with it and basically CI slash automate all your deployments. Fastlane is offering a much more modern slash easier version of the same thing. And now they have an integration with GitHub. Or I'm sorry, GitLab, although I imagine they have one with GitHub too. Um, that makes it fairly simple to deploy your iOS testing deployments, so your beta deployments to your customer or to your internal stakeholders, simply by merging a GitLab branch, for example. Oh, that sounds pretty slick. Yeah, I mean, it's still there's still quite quite a bit of work in it, but it's it's definitely like a, like what like what 
What's an example? Well, you have to generate the profiles and you have to have a little file in there for Fastlane to like pull oh, the profiles. Sure, right. You got to do some integration, get their hooks in. There's some integration stuff. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's the same thing you would be doing if you went my approach with the physical machine doing, say, Jenkins. Right. So I guess then it just becomes a a question of how much do you not want to have to set all that up and uh, what's the ongoing price going to be? Right. Or do you want a physical machine or not? Right. Like that becomes a big deal. Right. And there may be a cloud. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Can you, do you need this to scale or are there benefits that you can get? Like it seems like you might be able to do of just having a physical machine that can wear multiple hats. Right. So I have a, like right now you're, you're baiting me, but right now I'm on a Mac mini that is our build machine, but also my podcast machine. So for the amount of native iOS development we currently do, it's easier just to have one build machine and automate that via the local machine. Certainly in the future, Fastlane could make sense. And I think, in fact, if you don't have a, uh, access to a macOS machine, although it's going to be hard to generate the profiles if you don't, but if you can somehow generate the provisioning profiles and the certificates, Fastlane plus the GitLab integration is definitely a great choice. And in general, if you were a larger team than what we are at Team B, right? That's what that's it's what a I great choice. That made me think the same thing, right? Like if you can have a couple people, one person maybe who kind of handles all that, gets it set up, and then the other team members, they might not need to care about it at all. It's integrated into CI. They just can push some changes and have it go through the pipeline. Right. So right now I am the CI. I pull the the few I native iOS things we have and I build them and bums are uncle. I have a few scripts I have, but it's all local. Yeah. So again, at scale, I think I think this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that really does. Interesting. Well, we'll have to see audience members, dear audience members, if you're using it uh, or have other solutions. Well, we'd always love to hear it. We'd always love to hear about it over at coder.show slash contact. All right, I'm going to hijack the show just for a little bit here. We're going to call this maybe the closure corner. Really, it's not about closure at all, but as you know, I'm a little bit fascinated. One thing that's recently been happening in the closure world is that Alex Miller, the wonderful developer who works at Cognitech, mostly on closure itself, well, he had uh, he had some of his tests posted on Reddit this week, which, as he says, was unexpected. And I thought that was kind of interesting because tests, well, they're important, obviously, but there's a lot of different approaches. And too often, I think we end up in a world of like, you start at like, tests are good, you need tests, write tests. But then we stop talking about it. Um, so in this case, the tests in question are checking, among other things, that maps returned by spec, which is a, a validation library for closure, which we can and should get into another time. Basically, it's returning some maps, right? But the, the key point here, what, we want, what I want to talk about today is you might not always care to validate every attribute. And more importantly, you often don't want tests to fail when you enhance something, right? So this is often stuff like, um, it's like reporting information about a data structure, how it conforms, what the internal structure of it is. And if someone adds additional attributes, more information to that map, which is generally a non-breaking change, right? I'm talking about like adding a key to a map. So you still have all the other keys, nothing's been removed. Having tests break due to just non-breaking accretive code changes not only is it a drag on progress, but if you're like me and Rich Hickey, the creator of Clojure, it just bugs you on a full philosophical level. In this case, also, there's kind of an interesting little custom function called submap as a concrete example, which rather than like checking for strict equality in your tests, it just verifies that whatever you're looking for is a subset of what you get, right? So you can set up like, I want to validate that this little chunk of data is always in the data I get, but if you get extra data, 
you might not need to break all your tests. And what it immediately makes me think of is all the tests I've seen so many times where you basically just end up with two lists of stuff, right? You like in your code, you do a bunch of stuff, and then your tests, you just write exactly the same stuff. You're not sharing a data structure. You, so anytime you make a code change, even if it doesn't really break anything, even if a test didn't catch that it had a downstream conflict, which is ideally what you're actually trying to test for, you still got to go update things in both places. Is this a problem you've encountered? You know, brittle tests, needless tests. I see it mostly in like in in some unit tests that are just poorly thought out, and it makes me think, what were you trying to test here? Yeah, testing has been a long visited topic of the show. I I, I sort of I'm surprised at your take. Actually, I thought you were going to tell me that the closure world had solved this problem. Um, well, I think there is a little bit of a different culture there. Um, TDD can be great. I'm not a particularly strict adherent. Um, I, my personal philosophy is a little bit more like you just got to be thinking about software. Obviously, tests are a part of the way that you do that, and you need tests, especially for maintenance mode. In the closure world, because it's so REPL-driven, a lot of time REPL interactions form the basis of TDD, and then REPL interactions get refactored into tests. And that's just sort of trying to take the interactivity of development up right. one level because it's just faster. So it's so funny. I mean, one of the criticisms... Uh I mean, I've been doing a ton of Ruby and Rails, as you know, as um, other Rails devs have had at me, is that I am not a 100% test coverage zealot. I test things that are like, and people have been long-time listeners know, I test things that are like algorithmic or basically code that's complex and quote-unquote mathy, right? Like we're computing some value. Keep in mind, we mostly work in the aerospace industry, so, you know... Right, you implemented are, some real algorithms here that are that you need to validate. Right, and you want to make sure that when you deploy something new, they don't like blow up on you, right? Or even like inventory control systems, same thing. You want to make sure that you know you're always making sense. Uh, let me let me let me kind of sharpen that point. Like, I do not actually believe in UI testing in terms of automated UX testing, and I'll just stop there and say, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, hmm. I mean, I, w- I want to test as much as possible, but I think you do need to consider, and speaking to your 100% test coverage thing, like you do have to consider return on investment because everything costs time, especially in the business world. And it's just going to always be a, a value trade-off. So I, I do see use in, in good integration tests. They're often harder to make and more of a time suck. But if you can validate things are really working in as close to the real world as you can get, then I like that. But UI testing can be can be pretty tricky um right like emulating clicks and taps and things like that that's what i'm talking about by ui testing yes right and i think part of that too is just because like uis are so stateful um that's, that's kind of why i'm a fan of some of the the react style of development and the way closure approaches that too where it's a little more functional and you've got data and then data fed to views that just returns you know whatever you're going to render out to the page so that you can hopefully have like a little a little bit less state or like one central state um I know a fun example of this was for a while the Circle CI interface was written in, in ClojureScript, and so they just had one big ball of state that was everything. And so if you got into a funky state in the UI, you could just hit, you know, you can serialize that out, save it, do a bug report, and then when you're going back to go troubleshoot that, all you needed was that one little blob of state loaded in, and then the entire thing is exactly back to where your user had the problem. So I think there are some steps you can do to minimize right. that. You'll probably need either still like humans looking at stuff to validate that it still looks good or some weird little thing didn't break it and it is also that's where it gets really complicated right because there's just 
so much difference. This is maybe where Chrome dominance would help on the flip side, but I, it's probably still right. not worth it. So it's so funny, though. You mentioned uh, you kind of glossed over it as just like a matter of fact, but statefulness. I actually think that's a huge deal, right? Like I've written a bunch of Kotlin. Um, oh, geez, it must be about seven or eight months ago. And I found just the way I ended up writing Kotlin was much more functional. Does that make sense? Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that, and I wrote, I had 100% test coverage on that only because it was, by being functional, it was so much easier to conceive of and write those tests in a relatively tri- trivial amount of time, where my normal Rails code, I can test the algorithms, but test the UI changes more than the algorithms, right? I mean, that's... Right, yes, right. Once you've got that really solid algorithm implementation, well, unless the business needs change, hopefully that's not changing too much. But you're right. That's I mean, exactly right, yeah adding a little bit more functional stuff just item potency in general being able to understand that you know functions are pure and you don't they don't have secret hidden away state that seems nice and that can be one thing where like a central state store in the ui can do instead of little tiny blobs of state hidden all over in each of your individual components that that can be complicated to keep track of i will say too just um like turth is talking in the irc and stuff i don't want to come across as as against tests and if if you like to like do it. You know, tests are good. You need them. They help, especially on large teams. And as always, it's about thinking about what you're programming. And tests can help you do that. It's a good way to start exploring APIs before you've implemented them oh, sure. and, and understanding what you're going to do. And it's a good way to, to check your assumptions. I just want to push back yeah. against the like rote copying style of unit tests. And I don't know, have you ever played with generative testing, Mike? Uh, I haven't, but go ahead. And I, I, do, I do have another comment, but go ahead. Yeah, I, we don't. We should probably do like a bigger segment on it. Um, but it's it's a way to sort of try to enforce invariance. Um, I think the biggest example people use is Quick Check, which came out of the Haskell community. But the idea is like, let's say you have, um, you know, you want to show something that like a times x or a times b is always the same as b times a, and you could have a just, you know a hundred unit test case that you do that. Right. But another way to do it is to generate if you can spec out what your input is. Right. Like this function takes two integers or floating points or or whatever. And then have it, the computer be smart enough to generate you a whole bunch of inputs, throw it at your function, and then test that the outputs meet your criteria. That makes a lot of sense to me. And in fact, we should do that in a few weeks, and I will study up on it and try it out. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I interrupted. The, the, what was your comment? Yeah. The only other comment I had to make is I have employed and seen just in other people's code a weird desire, and I'm speaking specifically about the kind of Rails community here, of writing 100% test coverage, but really shallow tests. Do you know what I mean by shallow, Wes? Yeah, I think so. Like, they're just, it's not really, it's not really testing anything deep. It's not poking. You're right. It's it just, just tests like, yeah. Is it of type string, right? Those kind of tests. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like the classic example of like testing like reverse, right? Like if it just, if all you care right, about like, is the type, that doesn't tell you anything about what the function's doing. Right, we're implementing static compilation via unit tests, basically. Yes, that's the perfect way to describe it. Yeah. So that's bad, right? Like if that's your version of testing, that's not good. You should be testing the actual business logic or algorithm. Wes, I am going to look into this generative test stuff. I think we should cover it one day and you can educate me on it because that sounds like something that could be very useful. Yeah. And, you know, I've had Uh, some people worried too, like, oh, but that's like weird randomness in your testing. And, and, And that can be true. But there's also always ways that you can sort of like, if you have good, you'll probably still have some specific examples, right? The edge cases you're aware of that you want to test around. And you can often, 
Like if they're done well, they all start with the same random seed. So you could save that seed and then always get the same ra- quote unquote randomly generated test examples. So it, it is a more robust than I made it sound. Yeah, and that's yeah. I mean, oh, you know what, Wes? We sh- we we should have a whole day on testing. I think in the next month. I think can we that commit is to that great- on the air with no prior conversation? <laughs> done, done, done. So it was written. So it will be done. Ramesses a second. There you go. So moving right along, now that we've made that little commitment, while I was at scale, I did see the wonderful folks from System 76. And that made me, Mike, well, that made me think of you and that new little toy that I know you have been using. The Darter Pro. Bum, bum, bum. So I wrote a review of the Darter Pro on DominicM.com. I like it. I think I like it more than the Thaleo, actually, which they're not going to be pleased to hear. It The fan noise is less offensive. Um, the battery life is about five to seven hours. This is obviously a laptop. It's got a beautiful matte screen at 1080 by 1920, I want to say, off the top of my head. I am a sucker for a nice matte screen. Yeah, you know what? I used to not be a matte screen guy if you listen to the back catalog, but I, I've kind of got taken in by the matte screen. And it, it depends, right, on, on your use case there, like where you're going to use it. But for something that's real portable, and I might, you know, I, I was be on my outside. laptop last night on the light rail, so it, it can right. be pretty handy. It's got a full keyboard with a number pad, which is a little awkward because it makes the it makes the regular QWERTY keyboard kind of off-center, if you know what I mean. But other than that, it, the keyboard's great. It's much better than a MacBook Pro keyboard. Um, I, I have a few complaints like the microphone input jack has a red light that's constantly on, which during the day you don't notice. But if you're working late at night, like there's a giant glowing red Danger Will Robinson light. Oh, which I guess which could, I, could be. Hmm, yeah, that sounds pretty distracting. The spouse approval goes much lower on that one. Uh, if you work, especially if you're working in bed. All on, it's got an RGB keyboard. I don't care about that, though I've played with it some. But if you like backlit keys with like funky colors. God bless you. Does that also mean then that the backlighting is fairly robust? You know, it worked well enough. You can adjust it. See, that does seem nice. That's one thing my yeah. ThinkPad doesn't have that I yeah. sometimes wish for. I mean, I just turn it off, but you can adjust it. Uh, the other thing, the only other negative thing I'd really mention is that it comes with two USB three Gen um, USB three Gen ones and one USB two, which. I don't know. I would have liked to seen two USB three Gen twos and then one USB three Gen one ports. I know that's like a super pedantic, like bitchy port argument. Um, and to its credit, it does have like a HDMI Display Port and a, uh, even has a Thunderbolt powered USB C. So it's it's a great machine. I just, you know, I just point out what I point out, right? Um, yeah, I will say overall, I, am, I am still. Yeah. I wish I wasn't, but I do still really like having uh, some some classic. USB stuff, but you're right that I don't know. USB C is just in such a weird place right now. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I don't mind that it's USB A. I would just prefer like I don't understand why we still have USB two ports instead of all USB three, especially right. when there's USB three Gen one and Gen two. Right. Mm, that's a good point. Having said that, uh, the trackpad is good. Um, what do you mean by good? And you're someone who's used the top of the line trackpad. Yeah. Here. I would say it is better comparing it to the Galago. It's about the same, if not better, than the Galago. Um, it's definitely better than, like, I have an HP Spectre that we use for demoing. It's better than the Spectre. 
It's a maybe slightly worse than a MacBook Pro, if not on par. Wow, really? Yeah, that it's is not pretty good. So the 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 only and in fact I didn't even put this in the review. The only issues I have is that like YouTube screen tears a little bit on Firefox, but I think that's a Firefox issue because it happens on Mac too. Oh yeah, probably just like your hardware acceleration or something, like something about the way that your rendering is not quite right. Some weird encode, right? You know, if you really want a Linux installed laptop, I would recommend this. Um, I have not tested the newest generation of XPS thirteen. But I have tested the most recent uh, Galago from System76. And I would say if you're in the market for a Galago, if you can tolerate a 15-inch screen, uh, the Darter Pro is significantly better. Uh, the battery life alone makes it worth, worth the bigger screen. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. What about, what about the weight? How portable is this guy? Oh, you're looking at three and a half pounds. Okay, that's not too bad. I can handle that. Yeah. 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 I've definitely had some pretty uh, beefy machines before and it was uh, stressing my back. So that's something I think about these days. Yeah. No, I like, I mean, it's not like an Oryx Pro or anything like that. Like, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, we also have one of those at TMB here. It's, that's a beefy machine. I know it's, it's a good machine. I, um, and mine is spec'd up. So the battery life uh, quotes I'm giving you in the article are five to seven hours with an i7 and, and, uh, uh, upgraded to 16 gigs of RAMs and an NVMe drive. I would also recommend if you're going to buy one of these, do not skimp on the NVMe drive. It's a huge performance increase, especially if you're a dev and you're doing a lot of compiling and linking. NVMe is just such a blessing. It it, it really. We thought SSD was good, and and now it's just the whole new world. And it feels expensive. I've I've thought about that too when looking at laptops. But you're right. If if you at all care about wait time you're doing a lot of file stuff especially you know building programs can often be that don't skimp sure and don't skimp on that i do have to ask are you is this review in pop os or have you installed something else on there yeah it's pop os 1810 nice it seems like you are actually really enjoying pop os i am so the thalio is on pop 1810 the uh the darter is on 1810 um you know i love elementary i love pop i've ended up landing on pop what what is it about it? You know what? I like some of the easy stuff for like installing TensorFlow, but more importantly, I just don't want to deal with drivers. I mean, this is such a stupid reason, but like if elementary was an option from System76, I might have done that. But I really don't want to like go and pull drivers and like compile AMD drivers or whatever. I'm thinking of the Thaleo in particular here. I want it to be pre-installed and pre-configured and done for me. Right? I I am the Mac turned Linux guy, but I want it to be like a Mac where I open the box, and I don't mind installing my tool chain, but I don't want to have to fiddle with drivers and ah right. You want an operating system that's already built for and well supported on the hardware that you're running, exactly. not having to futz with things like screen tearing. Mm, yeah okay that makes exactly that makes yeah. a lot of sense so do you think if you had a non-system 76 rig would you be tempted to install pop on that so i actually well my um we have a flight simulation machine here which is a uh, optiplex 7050 was running both pop and uh later elementary and it was fine i just had to uh, pull down the amd driver and set it up I, I do think, though, like, I'm going to stick with Pop. 
Wow. Just for convenience. Yeah. No, I mean, once you find something that works, why, why change it? Especially when you get code to write. All right. Well, speaking of unfortunate changes, we started chatting, getting ready for the show mm. today, talking through things. And I came to realize that something had gone wrong in your morning. You were clearly uh, stressed over some things. And it turned out to be our old friend, Googs. Yeah, so back in the days when the gods were petty and cruel and Hercules roamed the earth, played by Kevin Sorbo, deep reference. Oh, yeah. Deep reference. There was a social network. I didn't, Wes, are you familiar? There was a social network called Google Plus. Oh, yeah, right. It was like sort of like Facebook, except no one used it. I used it. Jeez, man. No, it did seem like it had a, a tech following, and that was about it. Yeah, it, you know, it was really popular with the hashtag Linux. I just want to say that. Like, it was real popular. Through that Google+, Plus, there was an API that allowed authentication even for internal Google emails for, like, Google for work. Oh, really? But it, but but it then, went through, somehow, it was tied to Google+. Plus. Google+, Plus, yeah. But then the gods were cruel. On March the 7th. Because at midnight, March 7th, the Google Plus API went to Hades. Yeah, right. As as they say, legacy Google as, Plus APIs have been shut down as of March shut 7th, down. 2019. So, I did not know this. I had to find this out the hard way. Right. And on March the... And they, and they did like a staggered shutdown, so like some things wouldn't work, but some things would. Uh-huh. I was scrambling. Now... We predominantly work in Rails right now for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that we're using a gem called Omnioth. All we had to do after checking it out for a while was upgrade the version of the Omnioth gem. Change no code just to use the non-Google Plus version of the Google Auth API. So this is kind of a PSA. If you're having authentication problems and you are running uh, Omnioth and your authentication problems are with Google, make sure you're running at least version, uh, I think it's like 6 or 0.6, however they do the versioning. Anything with a 5 or 0.5 is not going to work for you. Wow. You know, that is a that is a dependency success story that you don't always think about because that could have been a really painful process requiring you to change dependencies or rewrite how some of your internal... Rewrite applica- the authentication scheme. Yeah, yeah. That's not simple. Yeah, it, it, and then I, you know, I have to say I was the hero of the story. Like oh. I was trying to rewrite the dependency. But I'm like, I don't know about this. It's Ruby. Let's go f- find the gems. I, you, you should believe me. Uh, and sure enough, right there in the build notes for Omnioth 6 was, oh, no longer dependent on the Google Plus API, now using Google Authentication. And it's a clean upgrade. So that's a Code Radio success story. Give me my bell. Yes. Yeah, it is. I was about to say that. Like, it's it's great. It looks like on back in January they added it. It's in the change log and everything. So, they, yeah. Omnioth is a uh, good job. Yeah, and we'll have links in the show notes for that. Um, and I'm sure there's similar things if you're doing Django or Java, right? There's similar dependencies. I will also say, just from having to do a little bit of it in the past, some about the way there's a lot of stuff Google does pretty well, but there's some about some of their APIs that I just find really unpleasant. You know, I always felt it was because originally they were a Java shop, right? Like, oh, that could be it. Yeah, they just kind of have that like feel. super verbose. Yeah, 
And, you know, it, it's fine, but it's great that you can have, have a gem that you can rely on and hopefully abstract that thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the challenges of Rails, though, managing your gems. I mean, I, I guess it's a challenge even in, like, .NET and stuff, because, um, right. you know, obviously you have NuGets and... It's it's always a, I mean I I'm curious how you approach this. It's always a balancing act though, right, between your dependencies and your own code. Yeah, right. And these days it's pretty hard unless you're doing something really low level or brand new. You're you're just going to have a lot of dependencies because half the stuff we do is basically tying different systems together, right? At, yeah, basically. at least in the modern internet connected yeah. age. Yeah, and so it is. I think that's one thing that can take. Uh, new programmers a while to learn, especially in maybe a more complicated environment, is just that, yes, dependencies are great, and there's really great libraries that can do a lot of the work for you or really simplify how you think about things, but you do need to actually do a little research before you go and add it. It's one thing to go try it out in a, in a shell really quick or something, but if you're really going to start adding it into your build system and start depending on it, do a little research. Dig into the code, see if you can understand it. Maybe try to estimate, like, what would it take to fix a bug in this if I really had to? What's the community like? Are they receptive? Are they harsh? Do they not take feedback or criticism or pull requests? Those are all just good things to research and figure out. I agree. Just to pull it back, one thing I do really like uh, about the Clojure ecosystem is because it is so high level and, and often does rely on other you know things, things from Java or other JVM ecosystem libraries, I, I do find that I can almost always read through the code base. Now, I might not read every little bit, but it's it's... I found it very refreshing. Unlike, say, Java, I can usually find the parts of the code that I actually need to care about. And even if I'm new to the library, I can at least skim through it and get like, okay, it might be one or 2,000 lines of code, perhaps. But that's actually not that big. And if I had to, I could wrap my head around it. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Unfortunately, well... You're still going to need a tool to do that. And that is where we go to our next topic, which is our tool of the week. I do have to start out right out of the gate. They stole what should be our domain name. Did you notice that, Mike? I did not. What did they steal? Yeah, well, they got Coder. Code servers? Well, but but if you see the the company behind it here, they've got Coder.com, which, oh, man. I mean, Coder.show. Coder.show is great. Keep going to Coder.show. But but dang, if only if only they hadn't taken it from us. Oh, why are we featuring this again? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I just thought it was an interesting little case study of tooling, and I wanted your perspective on it. So basically, Code Server is it, it's open source. It's VS Code running on a remote server, accessible through the browser. What's nice is they've also got it all broken out. So of course. If you want to, you can go pay for this as a service. They'll run all the servers for you, provide you account details, you log in, use your favorite IDE. But they have a pretty easy-to-use little Docker container, too. So if you're more like me and you're like, well, I got way too many servers running all, all the time, you can just pop this over there. So if you, you know, maybe you're developing on a, on a Chromebook or a tablet, you don't have to worry about trying to get VS Code installed on that environment. You can just use your web browser. That's interesting. It reminds me of uh, a few years ago we featured Cloud9. Yep, and that was exactly what came to mind. <laughs> That's exactly what came to my mind. AWS bought them, right? I think so, right? It was Amazon. Yeah. And so it's, it's clearly like, quote-unquote, cloud workspaces. Excuse me while I go vomit really quick. It seems to be a thing. Now, it's not, it's not an area I really need to use, and that's just probably because... 
I have fairly, fairly simple tooling and mostly just run on Linux. But I'm curious, as someone who was just talking about renewed faith in the iPad, is this something that you have a use case for? You know what? It could be good. Honestly, I like this idea more for teaching than anything else, right? Just like I like Cloud9. I think like cloud IDEs or cloud text editors are make a lot of sense for sort of a um, how to say this, but like an educational environment where you're trying to teach like dev concepts, right? Does that make sense at all, Wes? Right, right. So you're you're trying to get people started programming. It can be pretty rough if you have to go through all the hurdles of carefully setting up a development environment. I mean, you can you can see that even in for experienced developers, right? You just often there's a lot going on, especially if you're picking up a code base. So I can see this, right? Instead of having to go futz with this, you just point them, give them a login to whatever system, tell them to have at it, and they can explore, play with, use all the neat, helpful features of VS Code without having to deal with any of the complications of running it. Exactly, exactly. I do, however, think on the iPad, you'll definitely need online access. Yeah, right, totally. Unless, I guess, I suppose if you were running it on your local network, that would be one advantage of the open source nature of this. That would be. I I still feel like, though, a native iOS iPad app that is a text editor would be pretty valuable, at least to me. Yeah, okay, that's true. So some of the advantages they listed here are, you know, Chromebook, tablet, tablet, whatever. Or if you're like on a Windows or a Mac, you can use this and know that it's already talking to stuff on the back end running in Linux. And of course, you might be able to preserve battery life. One thing they mention here is, right, all of the intensive stuff runs on a server. And because VS Code is Electron, well, if it's just a tab in a browser, that's one less Chrome instance that's running. Right. That's but true. I, I, did, I just had to, had to note the reason this works so well and the reason that they can basically just fork VS Code and you know kind of patch it up to make it run in a server environment is because Electron uses web technologies, right? Like we have a common base of this stuff. And while it kind of sucks in some ways, especially the memory overhead, there are a lot of advantages to the speed of things because you have one tool set. I don't oh, know. No, I think that like somehow web technologies are eventually going to take over, but I'm not sure that on the iPad in particular we're there yet. Yeah, that's true. And and iOS is obviously a platform with really high expectations, both by Apple and end users. So if you're going to do it, like you probably want to make sure it's gonna it's gonna be kick ass. Yeah, you really need it to be super responsive and kind of follow. I think the Apple like command structure. Right, just even like keyboard shortcuts, because many people using an iPad Pro are using those uh, Apple external keyboards. So, but yeah, I think this is great. I mean, I, w- I would, you know, I have a little brother, Wes, who's 11, and he wants to oh. learn some coding. So this is the kind of thing I would definitely use with him. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I've played with it a little bit. I mean, I just, I'm not, I'm not going to use it anymore, but perhaps the audience will find it useful. That's what we hope. And you can give us feedback about it if you'd like to. Just head on over to coder.show. You can also find all the ways to subscribe. We're on basically all the platforms you want. We've even just got a plain old RSS feed if you want to do it old school or just, you know, download an MP3 like a maniac. I don't know why you do that, but 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 you could. You could. And, of course, you can find all the other wonderful Jupiter Broadcasting shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Dot com. Dot com. And... If you just want more, you can't wait till the very next episode. Well, we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and you're... 
at Jimenuko. You can also find the network there at Jupiter Signal. If you want to hear a little bit more discussion of the recent JB trip down to scale, well, tune into the next Linux Unplugged. I'm sure we'll be talking about it there. Thank you all for joining us today and come back next week. <laughs> <laughs>